C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not, because, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It's a great quote because what it's saying is that as we come to God's word, we, what we see is reality. We see reality for how it really is. And as we already heard from God's word this morning, what we see, uh, first of all, is really the problem that has arisen as a result of sin. Um, back there, right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, God, as part of his judgment on the world, said that to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And that's the reality, isn't it? That's the sad reality of life on this earth, is there is this struggle within us that for the woman, her desire will be to rule over her husband. Uh, you see the same expression used in chapter 4, where sin desires to rule over Cain. And the Lord says, but he must master it. And it's sadly, in response, the man rules over the woman. He doesn't treat her with love or respect or gentleness, but he seeks to dominate. That's the reality. But the other thing that we see, and this is, can I just say, absolutely crucial to what we're going to read in God's Word today, is we also see the solution. And the solution of the gospel is the very thing we need to keep at the forefront of our minds, particularly as we read this passage. Because it's the gospel which is the answer to not only our estranged relationship with God, but also our estranged relationship with one another, especially in the home. And so the gospel provides a model for how all marriages, Christian marriages in particular, are to be. In fact, you should be able to see a good and godly Christian marriage and be able to hopefully say, by the grace of God, there is the gospel. Because the model of Christ and his church and everything that Christ has done is the paradigm that scripture gives us. Now, I'm going to do something really risky over the next couple of weeks. Um, and that is, I'm going to split what Paul says um, to husbands and wives in two. That's really risky. It's risky for two big reasons. Uh, first of all, it's risky because, as I've just said, it's the gospel which is the framework for everything that Paul has to say to husbands and wives. But there's another really big risk I, I, I run in doing this. And that is, it would be absolutely terrible if after today, and I'm just going to speak to Christian wives today and what Paul says there, it would be a disaster if every man, even in jest, gave his wife the elbow and said, ah, see, this is what you're supposed to do. Because this is the problem, again, in our sin, is what we do is we look at what God commands our spouses, and we try to get them to obey it. That's not our responsibility, particularly as men. That's their responsibility to Christ. And in the same way, next week, God willing, when we look at what God's word has to say to husbands, which is twice as long, and I think <laughs> 10 times more far-reaching, um, there's, there's, we've got to resist the same temptation. All right, with those words, brief words of introduction, let's look at God's word. And I'm going to read from verse 21 through to verse 24. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, 
submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. One of my favourite songs is by a guy called Andrew Peterson, and it's called Dancing in the Minefields. It's a song about marriage, which on the one hand acknowledges how difficult, but also on the other hand, how important it is to remain faithful. To be committed to the promises that the husband and wife make to one another on their wedding day. The whole song is excellent, but let me just read to you a couple of the lines. He says, Well, I do are the two most famous last words, the beginning of the end, but to lose your life for another, I've heard, is a good place to begin. Because the only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. And I believe it's an easy price for the life that we have found. And we're dancing in the minefields. We're sailing in the storms. This is harder than we dreamed. But I believe that's what the promise is for. That's what the promise is for. As I said, it's a really powerful song uh, with an equally beautiful melody. And I'd really encourage you to take a look after church. A little later on in the song, he goes on to sing this. Because we bear the light of the Son of Man, so there's nothing left to fear. So I'll walk with you in the shadow lands till the shadows disappear. Because he promised not to leave us and his promises are true. So in the face of all of this chaos, darling, I can dance with you. That's such a beautiful promise, isn't it? Because of the promise of the gospel, we can stay committed to one another in love. In the face of all of the hurt and disappointment and the emotional chaos, we should stay faithful to our marriage vows because Christ remains faithful to us. And so I'm hoping and praying today that the Lord will bless each and every one of us with hope to renew our commitment to our spouses and to face our struggles together. Because let's face it, marriage is one of the most difficult things you can go through in life. And this is not just a word, can I say, to married couples here, but also to to single people. The challenge is to keep on dancing in unison through minefields, to keep sailing through emotional storms. So let's pray that the Lord would speak to us all through his word this morning as we've just sung, that he would impress upon our hearts those things he wants us to hear. There's lots of hurt and pain that we need to also keep in mind as we do this, so let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true because, Lord, you are the true and living God. You know each one of our hearts, Lord. You know our pain, our trials, our hurt. Lord, the baggage of past relationships or even of present struggles. And so we pray now, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would minister to us through your word. 
Lord, we pray that you would bless us, that we might live lives in accordance with your will, to the glory of your name and to the blessing and love of each other. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you take a look at your sermon outlines, you'll see that there are four main points that I'd like to cover this morning. And they're all found, really, in the verses directly before us. The first is contained in verse 22, and it's about the undergirding relationship of submission. This is the paradigm for which everything else Paul says is going to flow. But because rather than being some kind of, you know, I think culturally defined or historically limited quaint piece of marital advice, what Paul says here is a reflection of our own relationship with Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, just before we consider what this actually means, we have to first of all address, I think, a very important and indeed somewhat controversial exegetical question. Because a few of you actually have already written to me asking, well, why haven't I made verse 21 more determinative as to what Paul also says to husbands? It's a very important question because many people understand verse 21 Uh, about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ to argue that the command to submit is reciprocal. And this is how, in other words, um, this understanding, all Christians should relate to one another all of the time. Now, somewhat surprisingly, the word submit doesn't actually appear in the Greek text of verse 22. Instead, it's carried over and applied from what Paul has just said in verse 21. So verses 21 and 22 literally reads like this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husband as to the Lord. Unfortunately, the NIV has a chapter heading between those two verses, which breaks up the flow of what Paul is saying. But as you can see, this has caused more than a few people to argue that what Paul is teaching here is what is often referred to as mutual submission. That is, wives and husbands both submit to one another in roughly the same way. But while a popular line of interpretation, as I tried to outline in your study notes this week, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Don Carson, one of the world's leading New Testament theologians, even goes so far as to say this, this quote, I have to tell you, frankly, that is a false reading, demonstrably false. In my view, it isn't even arguable, though many argue it. That's a big call. So let me just briefly outline why he says that. As I explained last week, the word submit always refers to ordered relationships in the Bible where someone is under the authority of another person. Now, this is incredibly countercultural, isn't it? Because we live in an egalitarian culture. We live in a world where submission is almost the, the word you cannot say. 
And as such, none of the relationships in the New Testament where the verb is used is used to describe the way that we relate to one another is actually ever reversed. So, for example, husbands are never told to be subject to their wives. Nor are parents told to be subject to their children. Or masters to their slaves. Or governments to its citizens. Now, I know we live in such a egalitarian culture. I think many people would say maybe we should. But what Paul is doing in verse 21 is he's setting up a paradigm or a chapter heading, if you will, for what submission will look like in all of the different kinds of relationships that believers will all find themselves in. We don't submit to one another in every possible way at every possible time, but for every single one of us, whether you're male or female, you will have to submit to somebody at some point. That's Paul's point. John Stott goes, makes the conclusion that this point, in his words, is beyond question. And he goes on to make this insightful observation. He says, Wives are addressed before their husbands and are told to be subject to them. Children are mentioned before their parents and are told to obey them. Slaves are addressed before their masters and are told to be obedient to them. So this is a command specifically addressed to wives and Paul says that it's to reflect your own relationship with God. Take a look again at what he says in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, the submission you show to your husband is a direct reflection of the submission that you show to Christ. Paul uses a similar kind of logic in Colossians 3, where he talks to slaves. And he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for man. Do you see how submission then is a profound expression of your own relationship to Christ? Because you really can't say as a believer, and can I say to my Christian sisters here, you can't really say that you submit to Christ if you're not genuinely committed to submitting to your husband. For it's ultimately Christ whom you are seeking to honour and glorify. That's God's word. That's the first thing that Paul has to say. The second truth outlines the reason for submission in verse 20, 23. Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Now, once again, there has been a whole lot of ink spilt as to what does the word head mean? Many have tried to water it down by claiming that it means something like source, much like when we use or the expression or we talk about there being the head of a river. But as ingenious as this particular line of interpretation is, it runs into one major difficulty, and that is the Greek word for head Kephale never means source. 
Wayne Grudem, another one of the world's leading New Testament scholars, looked up every single reference to the Greek word for head in ancient literature and found that it never meant source. He identified 2,336 different examples in ancient Greek language and found that it always meant authority and never meant source. Which means that God has designed there to be a difference in the way that husbands and wives should relate to one another. Indeed, as we've just seen, our marriages should reflect God's own relationship with us. The husband is to represent and act like Christ. And the wife is to represent and act like the church. The problem is, friends, is this is what I've seen lately, I think over the last 25 years, particularly in evangelical churches, we've become ashamed of God's word. I can't tell you how many Christian marriages and weddings I've been to where the Bible reading will be anything but Ephesians 5. Why? Well, because I think some people say to me when they come for marriage counselling, oh, look, that's a bit controversial and I just want you to preach the gospel. And I try to push back gently and say, if you want me to preach the gospel, then let me tell you what Paul says to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, because that's the gospel. Oh, yeah, but it will be because people get upset. Well, then can I say, you're being ashamed of God's word. You see, what Paul says here, when you understand and perceive it like he says, is not only profound, but it's incredibly beautiful. There's this symmetry that actually reflects how God as a trinity relates within himself. You see, God the Son is subject to the headship of God the Father. He submits doesn't make him less than the father but it does mean that he submits to the authority of the father so submission is actually grounded in a woman's own relationship with Christ and the reason for your submission is because God has made your husband the head of your marriage as Christ himself is the head of the church now, what that means for husbands, we'll look at next week. But let me just say now, the call to submit is nowhere near as radical as what Paul demands of husbands. God willing, we'll focus on what that means. Again, can I just say, and this is because it's really important, what we hear and what we believe can be two different things here. Because we can hear what God's word says, but then we can go out from here and go out those doors this morning and think, particularly for, for husbands, my job is to make my wife submit. That's not it. As we'll look at next week, your job is to love your wife as Christ loved the church.
And I think in a similar kind of way for Christian wives, there's really just that one command that's being given here to keep in mind is submit, surrender, stop trying to compete. The third truth the Apostle Paul teaches is about the range of submission in verse 24. And as you can see, it's all-encompassing. That is, it's not limited to just those areas that your husband might be more gifted or competent in you. That's not really submission. No, what Paul is saying here is much more far-reaching than that. He says in verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, when a lot of people read this, they panic and they make a wrong conclusion. They think that being submissive um, means that you can no longer have an opinion or a personality of your own. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. To be subject is to literally arrange oneself under another person. It's not about doing nothing but rather about doing all that you can for their benefit or their blessing. It's about bending and adjusting your desires, focusing your energies so that a higher purpose than your own can be achieved. In short, it's about complementing rather than competing against your husband. Brian Chappell uses this really great example of the church's submission to Christ to explain this particular aspect. He says, the church does not submit to Christ by singing a little softer, exercising intelligence a little less, or seeking to be of little influence in the world. Rather, she is called to arrange all her energies and abilities under the grand purpose of glorifying the Saviour. To do less would not be submission, it would be disobedience. He then goes on to say, biblical submission does not call women to suppress their gifts any more than the church is called to suppress her gifts. The gifts of the church are to be fully exercised for the glory of another. In the same way, women should fully express, not suppress their gifts for the good of another. This truly is an arranging under of one's own gifts for the glory of another. So Chapel says, proper submission of gifts to the good of another may actually involve challenging another with the insights or righteousness that God has provided. A wife who suppresses all comment or action while a husband abuses a child or destroys himself with unwise choices is not exercising biblical submission. Simply abandoning another to his or her faults is not God's purpose for one he places in the marriage to make the other whole and glorious to himself. Challenge must still be expressed with love and respect. Still, submission ultimately cannot be simply the suppression of gifts, but rather is full expression of them in behalf of another. That's such a great corrective to what I think a lot of people wrongly conclude submission must mean. But with that said, my sisters in Christ, there is still a great challenge here 
to submit to your husbands as you would to Christ himself. And rather than think of when it might be possible to challenge him, try and think more of what it will mean to submit. That is, to joyfully and willingly arrange yourself under your husband as he will be answerable to God for the, for the direction that he thinks you should take. This doesn't mean agreeing with being abused, for submission means there are times when sin should be confronted. And can I just say, practically, I think this will involve either the elders of the church or even the church, or even the police. But more often than not, submission means giving up control. All of which leads to the fourth and final point Paul makes, and it's found at the end of the section. And it addresses the specific responsibility of submission at the end of verse 33. Notice that most of this passage is addressed to husbands. As I said before, what they're being called upon to do is more far-reaching still. But I want to draw your attention once again to the different commands Paul gives to husbands and wives in verse 33. Because we're not told to relate to one another in some kind of mutually submissive or reciprocal way. Once again, this is why I think the idea of mutual submission just doesn't explain what the passage means. Paul says in verse 33, However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Once again, Brian Chappell has some really good things to say about this. He tells the sad story of when his wife and he were first married and they lived in a really poor part of the city. This meant that the walls were paper thin and you could hear pretty much everything that was going on in the next apartment. He tells of one particularly heart-wrenching situation that involved a minister and his wife. He says this, I'll quote, The fights were awful. But as Kathy, his wife, and I, night after night, would lie awake in bed, we would try to close our ears to the conflict as it continued to escalate. We would sometimes turn to one another and say, why does, he, why does she taunt him so she knows that he's going to hit her? He said that ironically, most of their fights were about who was the better witness. We usually tried to ignore the shouts and slaps until he started choking her so she could not respond. And then we would have to find some way to intervene, phoning, knocking or borrowing a cup of sugar. He then goes on to say this. He says, we did not know then what we have now learned about abusive homes that as often as a man will try to dominate a woman with strength, a woman will try to control a man with shame. I thought that that was particularly insightful. As often as a man in his sin 
will try to dominate a woman with strength. A woman will try to control a man with shame. Brian Chappell goes on to say that early on in his marriage, he and his wife agreed to never belittle or put down one another in public, even in jest. Because he said he noticed how many of their friends used ridicule, often quite innocently disguised as teasing, to get an edge over one another. He says, I had to be honest with my wife and say simply that I needed her to respect me. He then goes on to say, too few Christian women seem to know how much husbands need their wives' respect. Now, again, it's really hard, isn't it? Because of the sinful reality that we looked at before in Genesis 3. And again, we'll come to what husbands need to do more fully next week. But did you know that the word for respect is exactly the same word that Paul had used back in verse 21 when speaking about submitting to one another out of reverence, or you could say out of respect for Christ. And that connection is important because, ladies, the respect you show to your husband is a spirit-filled expression of your own reverence or respect for Christ. Now, I know that all of this is incredibly full-on. And in my own Mark Powell way, I've just tried to be as clear and as direct as I could. I know it's hard to hear especially if you're going through a really difficult time with your spouse right now. But let me encourage you about an incident an Anglican minister I used to work under once told me. His name was Neil Prott and he uh, said that he once had a woman in his congregation who was married to quite an outspoken non-Christian For years and years, she tried to do everything she could to get this guy to church, and he consistently refused. At her wit's end, she told Neil how exhausted and by now how even disappointed with God she had become. I've tried everything, she said, but it just makes him more and more hostile. Now, if you think I'm full on, this is the advice Neil gave to this woman. He opened up 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, and it says this, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence or, literally, respect of your lives. The woman was speechless. So what? I'm just supposed to... Be used as a doormat? No, Neil said. Take a look again at what the passage says. And he pointed her attention to the end of the section which talks about Sarah obeying Abraham. And then it says this. It's a good word for today. You are her daughters too if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. You are her daughters too. If you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 
That's the challenge, isn't it, sisters? To not give way to fear. To step out in faith and submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And I think of it like a trust fall, thinking, I really hope he catches me. Because if it doesn't, there's real consequences. But we can do this because the spirit of the true and living God is at work to fill you with himself. Christ himself has left you the model of submission to follow because that is how he himself submitted himself to the Father. He made himself nothing. He considered others better than himself, they being his enemies. He became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. So Jesus' words to you is, don't lose heart. Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to the competitive egalitarian gender philosophy of our age, which sees no difference at all. For it is by relating in this way that you will be personally blessed. Where your marriage to your husband will be radically, and I think by the grace of God, wonderfully transformed. Just before we pray, I'll just tell you one other story, true story, which happened in Sydney. An Anglican friend of mine had one of those beautiful Gothic cathedral type church buildings where everybody wanted to come and get married right by Sydney Harbour, the beautiful building in the beautiful setting. And so he often got request after request after request to get married there. One day, the most famous feminist in Sydney, who will remain nameless, came to be married at his church. That was a surprise because she was quite outspoken in her feminism. What really shocked him, though, is that she wanted the traditional wedding vows found in the Book of Common Prayer, which talk about, I will honour and obey. Somewhat shocked, my friend said to the lady, look, we do have more modern uh, versions that you might find more suitable to your own philosophy. Um, Why? Do you you realise that? You don't have to go with this. She goes, no, no, I'm not stupid. I've chosen that for a very good reason. And he said, well, like, I'm really quite shocked because everybody in Sydney knows that you're an outspoken feminist. Why would you go to say that you'll submit to your husband and even obey him? Do you know what her response was? Because I trust him. That woman, friends, knew far more than she was letting on. She saw so deeply into relationships that she saw the truth of God's word. Do you trust your husband? Do you love him? Do you respect him? Do you honour him? When we first came to Cornerstone here a couple of years ago and preached for the call, Angie met with a number of the wives and women here. And it was one of the most beautiful things. Do you know what they went around sharing? What do you most respect and appreciate about your husband? 
Do you know how countercultural that is? It wasn't a whinge session. It wasn't a grumbling session about all the way he fails. That could be a long session. <laughs> but what do you, by the grace of God, respect? That's what a spirit-filled woman asks. Well, on that note, why don't we spend some time in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word. You never change, Lord, and your word never changes, even though the zeitgeist of our age does. It ebbs and flows with the different sorts of opinions of the age. But, Lord, your word remains true. We pray, Lord, for grace, particularly for our marriages. So often, Lord, we hurt one another because of our sin and we want to ask for your forgiveness. We want to pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we would relate to one another in the way that your word says. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and we pray that you would so empower us that we might bless one another as your word says and that we would do it all for the honour and the glory of your name. Thank you for the model that you have first given to us, that you submitted to the Father. You became obedient to death. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that even while we were still your enemies, you died for us. So Lord, please bring healing in our marriages, bring healing in our lives. Even for those that are single, Lord, that have been married or will be married, we pray for much grace to think your thoughts after you, to know what pleases you. We ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.